Galatians 4, 8 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Once we were driving from Maryland to Columbus, Ohio, and we were on the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Turnpike heading west. And we were cheered because we saw signs that said the Ohio border was not too many miles away. And so we kept driving. We thought, well, we're certainly going to hit Ohio pretty soon. And we kept driving and driving, and driving, and there were no more signs for Ohio. But we started seeing these signs for Pittsburgh, and then we realized we were passing by Pittsburgh, but we were passing by Pittsburgh, and it was on our left, whereas it should have been on our right. (laughs) And because of the turnpike, you know how turnpikes operate, they have a limited number of ways to get on and off. And this was before we all had GPS, And so I don't know how we scrambled to try to figure out where we were and what was happening, but then we we couldn't get off this road. And we kept going and going. Then we started seeing signs for Youngstown, Ohio, and we realized what we had done is we had uh, stayed on what is 76, and we hadn't got off on 70. Well, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, for much of it, is 70 and 76 together. But in order to go south of Pittsburgh... And to go straight over to Columbus, you have to get on to 70 and not continue on 76. We eventually got to Columbus, Ohio. But we took this scenic or not-so-scenic route around Pittsburgh and then uh, south of Youngstown and curved all the way around. Hours late, hours late, we, we arrived in our destination. The, the thing about it was we didn't know that we were on the wrong road for a while. We just kept going along until some... Some warning signs started coming up to say, something's wrong here. You're not on the right route. You've gotten off the route somewhere or another. Now, if you've been following along in Galatians, that's what happened in the churches of Galatia. They were going along, 
and some, at some point they had gotten off the route and they had deviated into another system of beliefs that is inimical to the gospel. And Paul was the one to raise the alarm and to say, you've gotten off the path and you need to get back on the path again. And he was saying there's, there's danger ahead. And in addition, those who have gotten you off the path have evil motives for diverting your path. And that's what we have here. And here, Paul gets very, very personal. And he, he deals with these folk as friends, as, as intimate friends. And what he does here is he talks about their conversion. In verses 8 to 11, what he does is he talks about the conversion of the Galatians. Now remember, in the Jewish mindset, there are two types of people in the world. There are Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul has already talked about the conversion of Jews, but he doesn't talk about it in terms of conversion. Uh, He talks about the experience of Jewish Christians. As you recall, he used various images. In chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, he talked about getting out of prison, that the law had them imprisoned, and now they had escaped from prison. And then chapter 3, verse 24, of graduating from school and getting out from under the disciplinarian. And he also, last week, talked about them coming into their inheritance because they had been as underage children, and now they had come into their full inheritance as sons of God. And now he refers to the Gentiles, and their experience is different than that of the Jews. Paul never describes the Jews as those who don't know God. But that's how he describes the Gentiles. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, he says, you were enslaved to those that are nature, by nature, are not gods. He never describes the Jews that way, but he consistently, a number of places, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Titus 1.16, he refers to the Gentiles in their state before coming to Christ as those who did not know God. So the experience of a Jew coming to faith is is coming into full rights. The experience of a Gentile coming to faith is coming out of lostness and idolatry and ignorance into the knowledge of God. And that's what he describes here. He says, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods, idolatry, And he says, but now that you have come to know God, so you did not know God, now you know God, and then he corrects himself, or at least clarifies what he's saying. He says, or rather, we're in verse 9, or rather to be known by God. So he says, you did not know God, now you know God, or rather you've been known by God. Why does he make that clarification? Perhaps because he didn't want the these Galatians who were, had such a tendency to think that they had accomplished something, he, he perhaps did not want them to think that they had somehow scaled up to the knowledge of God. Somehow in their astuteness and in their learning had, had somehow managed to achieve knowledge of God. He says, no, it's even better than that. You didn't come to know God. Rather, God knew you. You have been known by God. And by the way, in Paul, in Paul's writings, to be known by God is to be loved by God. That's the emphasis here. So he says, you didn't know God, but now you've come to be known. That is to say, you have come to be loved and embraced by God. And that's what we saw last week in the, in the message on adoption. 
And, and since they had come out of ignorance of God and enter into the knowledge of God, into the love of God, Paul wanted to ask them a question. Verse 10, he asks them a question. Or rather, at the end of verse 9, he says, How is it, verse 9, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by, not by God, how, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. He says, how is this possible? He's already called them foolish, hasn't he? He's always said, he's already said, who bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? This change in you is so inexplicable that I can't understand it. It's, it I can't understand what's going on. How is it? How is it, Galatians, that you came out of ignorance and now you want to go back into ignorance. You came out of slavery, and now you want to go back into slavery. And what's his example of the elementary principles? His example is, in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's what they were doing. They were observing days and months and seasons and years. Probably what they were doing is they were going back to the Old Testament and they were observing, as a matter of religious obligation, they were observing the holy days from the Old Testament. Now, this helps us to piece together what the false teachers were teaching, doesn't it? We've already learned that the false teachers had come in after Paul had preached the gospel in the region of Galatia, and they started teaching that the Gentiles need to receive circumcision in order to be real Christians. Now, we can tack on to that, that not only did they need to be circumcised, but these false teachers were saying that the Gentile Christians needed to observe the Jewish calendar as well. Now I want you to notice that Paul calls these the elements, the elemental principles of the world. Let me ask you something. How do we know what a day is? How do we measure a day? It's by the turn of the earth, right? It turns around one time and we call that a day. How do we know what a month is? Well, it's roughly the phases of the moon. How do we know uh, what seasons are? Well, it's the tilt of the earth as it goes around the sun. How do we know what a year is? It's the earth going around the sun one time. Now, they didn't know all the things that we know about astronomy, but they did know enough to, to know that these days and months and seasons and years came from the elements. So Paul says, by observing these days and months and seasons and years, you are becoming once again enslaved to the elements of the world. That is, you're going back to an idolatrous state. You are treating these elemental principles of the world as if they were divine, rather than treating them as good things, good gifts from God. Now we're in a position to do something. I I gave you a little bit, I gave you a sticky note last week to put in your mind and say, hold on to this, we'll come back to it. And now we're ready to come back to it. Let's go back to verse 3 of chapter 4. It says here, Paul talking about the Jews, he says, in the same way, we also... When we were children, speaking of the Jews, we were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. This is fascinating. That Paul has said that the Jews were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world, and the Gentiles were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. And in the case of the Jews, he was referring to God's law. 
In the case of the Gentiles, he was referring to the, the astral beings, to the heavenly beings. And he's putting both of these, God's law and the heavenly beings, under this idea of elemental principles. What do these have in common? Because you would think that Jewish religion and pagan idolatry would not have anything in common. But what is the connecting link here? And this connecting link, in some ways, will help us to understand this whole letter. The connecting link is this. Both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, were using good gifts from God as a means to try to gain favor with God. The Jews were using the law that God had given to try to scale up to God and earn points before God and establish their righteousness before God, to be accepted by Him. The Gentiles, they had their their activities as well, often associated with the, the heavenly bodies, and they were following those things in order to try to be right with the God or the gods that were behind these heavenly beings. In technical terms, we call this legalism. Legalism. Now, that's a word that's thrown around a lot, and I hear it actually in the news now, and people criticize arguments. That's a legalistic argument. Uh, But specifically, what is legalism in these terms? It's using law, it's using rule, it's using norms, whether they be God's law itself, which is good and right and, and perfect, or whether it be... Uh, calendars or diets or whatever they might be, it's using laws in order to try to gain favor with God. And uh, Paul is putting them both now in the same category. If you use God's good law or if you use God's good creation to try to establish yourself before God, you're falling into legalism. You're being enslaved by elemental principles of the world. Now, the, the tragedy of the Galatian situation was this. They were reverting to legalism without knowing it. You see, they were off the path, and they didn't know they were off the path. They thought they were still doing fine. Paul said, Paul said, believe in Jesus Christ. And they had. Paul said, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. They believed it. They said, Christ is risen from the dead. They believed it. They received this gospel message, and they received salvation. But then... They started adding on. Believe in Jesus Christ and be circumcised. Believe in Jesus Christ and follow these calendar items as religious obligations. And there were probably other things that they were following. You see, they thought that they were just adding on, but what they were doing was actually destroying the message because these two cannot be mixed together. You cannot have salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, if you add anything else on to the work of Christ. Because then it's no longer faith in Christ alone. But see, this is the tragedy. This is why Paul is so distraught. He's saying, how is it, folks, that you have come out of this sort of, this, this pagan legalism only to adopt a Jewish legalism? And you're not even Jews in the first place. So it doesn't make sense what is going on here. And Paul was so distraught that he said, if you continue that way, that I'm not even sure that the gospel took root among you in the first place. Look at verse 11. I am afraid. I am afraid. I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid. 
which are strong words. And this is why Paul's so distraught. He says, I thought the gospel took root among you. I thought you would receive salvation, but now I'm not sure because of this inexplicable way you are reacting. This is what happens when we forget the gospel. And there is a tendency. It looks to me, in my own life, and in observing humanity, and observing church history, and observing uh, regular history, observing religions, it looks like the default mode of humanity is legalism. The default mode of humanity is to score brownie points before the deity. And uh, it's easy to forget the gospel if we're not constantly exposed to the gospel. I've seen this happen, and I've, I've had this same sort of feeling as a pastor. Shared the gospel with people, seen their response to it, baptized them, received them as members in the church, and then they get away somehow and forget the gospel. And this happens in church history as well. Churches that once were thriving, gospel-preaching churches, you can go into them now and not hear a word, a word about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but rather religious platitudes about how to make yourself okay before God. Paul now gets very personal in verses 12 to 16. And here he begins to to entreat them, to beg them. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. It's not quite clear, to me at least, what this means. I entreat you, become as I am, as I also have become as you are. He may be saying, I'm a Jew, and I'm free from these calendar dates. I don't have to follow these, so become like I am, because I became like you. You pagans didn't follow these Jewish rituals, and I'm a Jew, and I became like you, so become like me, free from these things. Or he could simply be saying, become like me, in my love for you, in my openness to you, in my desire for you, because I became as one of you. And then he describes how he was when he was among them. And he says, by the way, this is not personal. You didn't, this is not a, a question of you doing me any wrong or me doing you any wrong. That's not what broke down our relationship here. He says, you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. We don't know the situation, but it looks like Paul was either had to detour or was detained in the region of Galatia, because he was so sick. And it looks like it was a, an unpleasant sort of sickness. We don't know what the sickness was. There has been wild speculation about what the sickness was, and some people think they know what the sickness was. I don't know what the sickness was, but it was something that was unappealing. It was a trial to them. Anybody taking care of somebody who's really sick? That's not an easy thing to do, is it? And, and here, he says, you know it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me, look at this, received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Then he, he, the second part of 15, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now because of this, some people think Paul had eye trouble. But I don't know that we can conclude that. I think all we can conclude is what he said was, you would take your most precious sense, your most precious part of your body, and you would have given those to me if you could have. That's how deep our relationship was. That's how great your love was for me. And then he says in verse 15, what happened? What happened 
to your blessedness. This word blessedness, I think perhaps it might be better translated here, happiness. It's the same word we have in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, happy are the poor in spirit. And he's talking about the relationship. He says, what happened? We were so happy. Our relationship was so intimate and so close. You took care of me when I needed you. And I preached the gospel to you and you believed it. What happened to our happiness? He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 16, you know, this happens and I've seen it happen. When professing Christians abandon the gospel, their relationship with their pastor changes. It's not that one did any wrong to the other, but it's one got off message and the other continued on. And I've seen this. Some of my closer friends, they're no longer my close friends. They, they don't seem to want to have any interaction with me anymore. And it's not that they did anything to me. It's not that I did anything to them, except to continue to preach the message that we once both believed and from which they have departed. Paul begged them, begged them to become as he was. Now, he, um, he then laid open his heart, and he did this by way of contrast with those other, the false teachers. And here, he laid out what a good minister should really want. And he laid out what a bad minister wants. He says, verse 17, they make much of you, he's going back to talk about the false pro- or the false uh, teachers. They make much of you. Um, this is uh, the word to be zealous for, but I like this translation. It's, it, most translations say they are zealous for you, but I think this is a refreshing translation. They make a big deal about you. They're they're really fervent in seeking you out. Feels good, doesn't it? that these teachers would come in and make such a big deal about you. And that's what these false teachers did. But the reason they did it was this. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. What's the goal of the false teachers in that day? And what's the goal of false teachers today? To make a following for themselves. Not a following for Jesus, but a following for themselves. And Paul says, look at what they're doing. They're making much of you so that you will make much of them. They're seeking you so that you will seek them. They're following after you so that they can make a notch in their Bibles and say, I have one more follower. Now, in contrast, in contrast, the, the true minister, Paul lays out his heart here, He says in verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. So Paul says, here's how you can tell. If somebody has your best interests in mind, they'll make much of you, but they'll make much of you all the time. And they'll make much of you for a good purpose. And they'll make much of you when they're with you, and they'll make much of you when they're not with you. That's how you'll know. Not just to try to get you to follow them, and once they got you, they don't make much of you anymore. What was Paul doing through this letter? He was absent from them. What was he doing? He was making much of them. And he was showing his his fervor in seeking them out for a good purpose. He says here, my little children, the beginning of verse 19, 
He has called them, have you seen how this has advanced through this letter? First he called them foolish, and then he called them brothers. Verse three, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, you foolish Galatians. Verse 15 of chapter 3, dear brothers. And now what's he called them? Little children. Little children. Little children for whom he had a great deal of compassion. Little children who needed his protection. Little children who had gotten off the course. And here he says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. My little children. And here Paul. Paul takes on a feminine image here. And he says, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How do you know if a minister is a true minister of the gospel? This is what a true minister of the gospel most wants. That Christ be formed in you. And he describes himself here as a mother in the anguish of childbirth. And I've not experienced experience that, of course, but I've seen it a couple of times. And what does the mother want? For the fully born child to be out so that she can hold that child and nurse that child and take care of that child and nurture that child and love that child. And Paul says, that's what I want for you. I want Christ to be formed fully in you. And I am like that, that, that birthing mother to bring you to Christ. Paul has already said in that, that famous verse in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And he says, that's my experience and that's what I want in you. I want, I want your life to be Christ living in you. I want your life to be you living out Christ's power. I want Christ to be fully formed in you. This is what a true minister of the gospel most wants. Now, um, at the end here, Paul says, I really want to be with you all. Letters, that's what I have to send you now. I have to send you a letter, but I really want to be with you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. He didn't like writing like this to his little children. He didn't want to have to, 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 to call them to account and take them to task. He says, I don't like to talk like this. Any parent ever felt like that with a child? I really wish I didn't have to use this tone with you. That's not what I want. I want the restoration of relationship. I want maturity to be formed in you. And by the way, do parents ever get over that? with their children. doesn't matter how old their children are. Parents never get over that. And that's how Paul was here. So that's how I feel about you and that's how I always feel about you. My little children, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. He's afraid for them that his work had been in vain and now he's perplexed about them. Well, this section ends on a pathetic note, doesn't it? I I wish we could keep going because to leave this pathetic note of Paul longing for them and longing to be with them and being perplexed about them, I sort of hate to leave it on that note, but you know what? The whole letter leaves it on that note in a sense. 
Because we don't know what happened after this letter. We don't have history to tell us what happened. We don't know how the Galatians responded. We don't know if they were able to rectify their course and and get back on course. And we don't know if they continued in their waywardness and their error. Or if they heeded their their spiritual father, their spiritual mother's uh, longing and, and appeal to them. So we don't know. So there's kind of a question mark that hangs over this letter. We don't know how they responded. But thinking about that, that may be good for us anyway, that we don't know. Because we don't know if this story ended and they lived happily ever after, or if they kept going on their detour and ended up in destruction. Why is that good for us? Well, it's a reminder to us, isn't it? If the, if the end of the movie is inconclusive, if the end of the book doesn't tie everything up, it leaves us what? Hanging. It leaves us wondering. It leaves us thinking. And that's what this section particularly does for us. It's a constant reminder for us not to get off the path, but to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the one who started, and the perfecter of our faith, the one who will bring it to maturity and to fruition. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the only one who died and rose again, that we might have life in Him and in Him alone. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for our spiritual fathers and mothers. We thank You for those who longed for us to come to Christ and for Christ to be formed in us. And we have those children as well and we long for Christ to be formed in them. We don't know what happened with the Galatians, but we pray for ourselves that we would constantly be exposed to Your Word, to Your people, to Your truth, that we might not forget the Gospel and that our church may never forget the Gospel. That always in this place that the Gospel would go forth and be preached. And we pray for ourselves individually that we would not go astray. That we would not take Your good things and turn them into idols but rather that we would keep our, our eyes of our faith focused on Jesus, the only one who died and the only one who rose again, that we might have life in Him. And we pray for those who are straying, that You would bring them back, and that we would be the voice of, of concern and of love to bring them back, and that You would keep us from ever straying, but keep us on that path. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life to You. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.